On his 90th birthday, renowned atheist and public intellectual Bertrand Russell was throwing a party. He was having a dinner. And at that dinner, one of his friends looked across the table and said, Bertie, what are you going to do in a few more years when you pass away and you die and you're wrong and there is a God? What are you going to say to him then? And Russell said, I'm going to say, God, you gave us insufficient evidence, insufficient evidence to believe in your existence. Well, today, I want to show you, explain to you, that there is more than enough evidence to believe in God. There is sufficient evidence to believe in God, and specifically Christianity. And this evidence is ample, it's compelling, and I look forward to diving, it, diving into it with you here today. And my goal is this, simple. My goal is that you would have confidence, okay? Confidence that the God you believe in, confidence that the Christian faith that many of you follow has deep and profound intellectual roots. And where we're going to find some of these roots, first of all, is in the GOAT, the greatest chapter of all time, Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at one small verse, and I'm going to, as people like to say today, unpack one small but large word. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, Bertrand Russell was against him. A lot of people in our culture are against God. They want to kick God out of schools, kick God out of our culture. Many people will say God doesn't exist. So there are a lot of things and forces that are against God. So what about God? Is there evidence, and what are some of the evidences for the existence of God and the Christian faith? Let's go to our beautiful, clear, magical, I don't know, Wonder Woman board. And let's look at some of the evidences for God's existence, as if he needs our help, but we'll do it anyway, okay? So, first of all, you have scientific, scientific evidence. Starting with the Big Bang, okay? The Big Bang is a scientific theory that believes that the universe had a definite beginning, okay? For, for centuries, um, astronomers and physicists believed that the universe simply existed. It, it always existed. But in, in recent years, the last several decades, uh, astronomers and uh, Others who study beginnings believe that the universe actually began. Sounds kind of like Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the universe. And he created the universe ex nihilo, out of nothing. So the more recent Big Bang cosmology, as it's called, really comports with Genesis 1-1 and the very existence of God. And some of those findings are a little threatening to people. Like theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking 
said this. He said, many people do not like the idea that time has a beginning, probably because it smacks of divine intervention. Look at what Nobel Prize winner Arno Penzias said. He said, the best data we have concerning the Big Bang, that means, you know, how the universe began, are exactly what I would have predicted and had, if I had nothing to go on but the first five books of Moses and the Psalms and the Bible as a whole. So right off the bat, the Big Bang is incredible evidence for the existence of a God that created this world literally out of nothing. Also you have, within science, you have what's known as the fine tuning of the universe. So check out this uh, slide here of a, the cockpit of a Boeing 747. Look at that. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Look at all the dials and whistles and switches and flips and the pilot and the co-pilot, you know, has to figure out all those things to get the plane off the air, you know, off the ground, up in the air and land it safely. That's quite amazing, isn't it? I, th I think it's amazing. We take, you know, air, you know, flight for, for granted. We shouldn't. In an analogy, think how much more the universe has to be dialed in and calibrated and calculations to simply allow for the universe itself and biological life to exist and to continue to exist. So the fine tuning of the universe is yet another example of the evidence or an argument, if you would, for the existence of God. I like what astrophysicist Hugh Ross says, and Hugh's spoken here many times. He says, unless the, number of, unless the number of electrons is equivalent to the number of protons to an accuracy of one part in 10 to the 37th power, that's a lot of zeros, or better, electromagnetic forces in the universe would have so overcome gravitational forces that galaxies, stars, and planets never would have formed. The fine-tuning of the universe is absolutely mind-boggling. Another way um, to look at this would be the, the intricacy of the design and how that design has been maintained. Here's what cosmologist and astronomer Edward Harrison said. Check out this quote. He said, the fine-tuning of the universe provides prima facie evidence of deistic design of God. Take your choice, blind chance that requires multitude of universes or design that requires only one. So, the Big Bang Theory, the fine tuning of the universe are science, compelling scientific evidence for the existence of an all-knowing creator God. Also, you have Another form of, where's my pen? Gotta have that. Of scientific evidence. It's gonna be fun. It's called the irreducible complexity of biological systems. Okay? And what that simply means is that some systems 
within the human body and within nature are irreducibly complex. That means all the parts of that particular system have to be there at one time and be and working to make that system go. Michael Behe was the one who coined this term. He's a biochemist and here's, we, here's how he describes um, irreducible complexity. He says, by this, I mean a single system composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to the basic function, wherein the removal of any of these parts causes the system to effectively cease to exist. So it's obvious through the existence of these complex systems that since the beginning of time, there is a transcendent and beyond our comprehension mind who's responsible for everything that we see and we can't see. Design in the world cries out for a designer. I mean, if we would go up to West Texas and kind of go muddling around today and kick some dirt and we saw an arrowhead, we're gonna think that somebody at some time in some tribe designed that arrowhead for a particular purpose. Go, do this. When you go home today, get your laptop computer out and get a little small uh, Phillips head screwdriver and take the back off of your laptop and look at it. Look at all the circuits and all the wires and all the chips and ask yourself the question, is the result of the, your laptop computer, is that result of an intelligent designer or is it the result of some random explosion in a metal scrap yard in Sealy? Just, just, as you're driving out, driving out of the worship service today, ask yourself another question. As you look around and you see all the beautiful homes on your right and your left, ask yourself the question, are all these homes the result of an intelligent designer or a creative architect, or are these homes, you know, just the result of some rogue tornado that wandered into the memorial villages, okay? It, it simply doesn't make sense. Chance and a whole lot of time doesn't have the being and the power to be that creative. It cannot account for how the universe started, the Big Bang. It cannot account for the irreducible complexity and it cannot account for the ongoing fine-tuning of the universe for life to exist in the first place. Intelligent design cries out is evidence of an intelligent designer. Now, don't panic, okay? We do not get this theoretical and philosophical every Sunday here at Second, okay? Just everybody relax, we don't do that, okay? But I do think it's important, it's really important for us to understand, like I said, that we do have firm and deeply rooted intellectual traditions and scholarship within the Christian faith, not just in the last 100 years, but in the last 2,000 years. And it's important for us to know that, okay? So. Let's go back to the board. Let's look at more evidence. We've got scientific evidence. Uh, we also have 
philosophical evidence. Okay? One would be the cosmological argument. Okay? So, um, what if we could take a field trip today, jump inside of a yellow school bus, get a little brown paper bag, go out those doors, get out, and look around outside? All right? And we look around outside, we would see trees, we would see flowers and shrubs, we would see clouds, uh, we would see maybe a little bit of the sun. I don't know, it's kind of cloudy today. We'd see all these things that exist. And it's by nature, we would ask ourselves the question, if we were in a more reflective mood, if we weren't so busy or had our heads buried in our cell phone, we would ask ourselves the question, why do these things exist? Why does, you know, why does anything exist? Why does something exist rather than nothing, okay? Why do these things exist? It's just a natural question we would ask ourselves. Now, imagine that nothing existed. Nothing. Just nothingness. And we go outside and there's nothing. There's nothingness. Would nothingness need an explanation? Would, would nothingness need an explanation? Does it cry out for causation? Maybe you're thinking, did you have mushroom soup last night for dinner, Pastor? No, I didn't. No, to quote Billy Preston, nothing from nothing leaves nothing. Nothing does not cry out for explanation, okay? But things exist. Things exist. And when we go outside and we think, see the things that exist, all these things, the rocks, the, trout, the, the flowers, the trees, the grass, all these things exist. And all these things that exist are contingent. And the word that word simply means they rely on something else for their existence. It, they're contingent things. That means there was a time in, in this world when all these things we can see on earth and outside of earth in these galaxies, there was a time when these things did not exist. So everything in the universe is created. Everything in the universe is contingent, dependent, and we know that they're dying down. We know that there's gonna be a day where these things that we see in the universe do not exist. Some people believe that's gonna happen in about eight and a half years. That's an AOC joke for those of you who watch the news. But we do know, thank you, we do know that things are winding down. If you don't believe that things are winding down, then look at your driver's license picture when you were 16 and look at it now. So all these things we see in the universe, including ourselves, we know that we are contingent beings. These are contingent things. So stay with me, right? Imagine, if you would, the circle. Imagine that everything that's ever been made, everything that ever existed in the universe exists inside the circle. And everything inside the circle are contingent. They're contingent things. They're dependent upon something else to exist. Everything inside this circle will one day cease to exist. We have to ask ourselves the question, what caused cosmology, cosmos, world, logos, reason, what's the reason for the existence of all of these things we see in the universe? Why are they here? 
Who made these things? How did they get there? So the answer either lies inside the circle, they were self-created, which makes no sense whatsoever, or the answer to how these things got there are outside of the circle. There has to be an ultimate cause that created everything in this universe that are contingent, fading things. So whatever made this universe with all these contingent things in it must be what? Uncreated, non-contingent, all-knowing, and unlimited in power. That definition sounds a whole lot like God. So for years in the Western world, you know, through Aristotle and Plato and Aquinas, believed in this cosmological philosophical argument for the existence of the universe. And it was an evidence for the existence of God as the ultimate cause, okay? So there's cosmological evidence. Also, especially when you think it couldn't get any more confusing. Transcendental. Uh-oh. This is pressure spelling up here, people. Okay, there's also transcendental evidence for the existence of God. And the transcendental argument is very compelling. I, I spent almost seven to nine years of my life studying it. I'm gonna give a brief, 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 brief synopsis and then a resource to go to later. But the transcendental argument goes something like this, is that God is the necessary, provides for us the necessary preconditions for intelligibility. So without the existence of God, you can prove nothing in the universe. Without the existence of God, you can't use reason, you can't do science, you can't do math, you can't have art, you can't have language to communicate between two independent minds. You have to assume and presume the existence of an all-knowing, all-powerful God that's given us the minds and the brains and the heart to comprehend reality. It's called the transcendental argument. There'll be more on that later. Don't panic. It's a really compelling argument giving uh, evidences for the existence of God. The last one, I think most of us are gonna get in here, it's the uh, moral argument, okay? And uh, philosopher Immanuel Kant uh, gave us an example of the moral argument for God where he talked about the moral law within that all people and all tribes and all nations have this sense of moral oughtness of what's right and wrong. C.S. Lewis in his groundbreaking book, Mere Christianity, talked about the Tao, that there's a, there's a sense of morality that's true for all persons and all cultures, that morality is not a social construct, it's something that's innate in us. So if there are these moral laws and these moral absolutes that are objective for all people in all places all around the world, how do you account for this? And the only way to account for the existence of objective moral laws is to have an objective moral law giver who is God himself. So that's the moral argument, okay? Also, there's some people today, kind of crazy. We live in crazy times, don't we? I feel like the entire Western world is on a psychotic break, but that's a whole nother message. Um, but there's some people today that are saying things like, well, you know, Jesus Christ never existed. You know, that Jesus is 
is a myth. He never exists as, as, as a historical person. Christianity's true, it's blah, blah, blah. It's barred from the Egyptian mystery cults. It's just simply not accurate. So let me show you a list right here of some non-biblical sources outside of the Bible, outside of Scripture, that talk about Jesus Christ and talk about the Christian faith. You have Greco-Roman sources. You have Phallus. You have Tacitus. You have Pliny. You have Suetonius. You have Celsus. You have Jewish sources, the Josephus and the Talmud. And from these non-biblical sources, here's what we can learn about Christ and Christianity. We know the name of Jesus. We know the time and place of his public ministry. We know his mother's name. We know his brother's name, James. More on him later. We know his fame as a teacher. We know that he was a miracle worker. We know that his title was a Messiah. We know that some said he was a king. We know the time and manner of his execution. We know the names of the Roman and Jewish leaders involved in his trial. We know the coincidence, in quotes, of an eclipse in time that happened at the time of his crucifixion. We know of reports of his appearances after death. We know the flourishing of a movement that made Jesus the center of their worship, all from sources outside of la Biblia, outside of the Bible, okay? So the idea that Jesus Christ never existed as a historical person is simply erroneous, fallacious. It's simply not true. You can check out those sources and many many more. Now, in saying that, so you have these extra biblical sources or non-biblical sources. By the way, you guys can screenshot this later if you want to once I finish the, the, the chart. Um, and then you have the New Testament documents themselves. So the New Testament, which is you know 27 books, Matthew through Revelation, um, are some of the most, I guess, historically accurate books from antiquity, antiquity that we possess. So even an atheist scholar of scripture like Bart Erdman would use the New Testament as sources in his academic and scholarly research, okay? So let me tell you why. Let's look at some other books from out throughout church history, okay? Not church history, the history of mankind, Western world. Let's look at Homer, okay? He wrote in around ninth century BC. Earliest copy, we don't know. We have 643 copies of his works with 95% accuracy. Check out the works of Caesar. First century BC is when it was written. The earliest copy we have is 900 AD, which is a what, about like a 900 year gap between the time the events happened and when it was written down. 10 copies, we don't know the accuracy. Tacitus, okay, Roman scholar, wrote in around 100 AD. We have the earliest copies would be 1100 AD, almost a 1,000 years after the events, 20 copies, don't know the accuracy. The New Testament, check this out, was written in the first century between 50 and 100 AD, and that's being generous, okay, right? I think it was written earlier. But the earliest copy we have is from the second century in 130 AD, so there's only a 30-year time gap between the time it was written and the copies that we have. We have, listen, how many copies you guess? 5,000 copies of the New Testament. So the historical veracity and accuracy of the New Testament documents is absolutely compelling. Also, we don't have time to get into that, but we have incredible scholarship surrounding what we talked about last week, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Dr. N.T. Wright, who's an eminent scholar uh, from England talks about how the, 
resurrection of Christ is the only ultimate cause or, or uh, has the explanatory power to show us how the New Testament church started in the first place. In other words, if it were not for the bodily resurrection of Christ and these early believers proclaiming that, then the New Testament church never could have gotten off the ground. So the historical evidence for the resurrection is incredibly compelling. So if you want more, okay, if you want more evidence, if you want in-depth study of these issues in science, philosophy, or history, unless they've changed their algorithm and the algorithms in the last 24 hours, you can Google, for science, you can Google Hugh Ross. For philosophy, oh yeah, do this. Do this on your way to work tomorrow or school. Stein versus Bonson. It's a debate on the existence of God and Bonson uses the transcendental argument. It's incredibly great. And then for history, let's do Dr. Gary Habermas, who's one of the foremost scholars on the resurrection. So again, I, I, I enjoy these issues. I really enjoy science and learning what discoveries are coming out of science every day. It's really fascinating to me in many times, in many ways we live in a incredibly um, fortunate time in history. And I love how many of the scientific uh, discoveries that we're having today point to the existence and the evidence of God. I love philosophy. It's, it's, it's really interesting to me. Christianity has a deep, rich philosophical history that, that, I continue, that continues to challenge me. I love the fact that our faith is grounded in history. It's grounded in, in time-space history. We have great historical documents that gives a great foundation for our beliefs. But out of all these things, these things are very important. But this last block of evidence, I don't think it's more important necessarily, maybe, but it's equally important. And in my opinion, equally valid. When you ask the question, is there sufficient evidence, compelling evidence, for the existence of God and specifically the veracity of the Christian faith. And that would be experiential evidence, right? So that's great, right? You can scientifically prove, you can maybe logically prove, historically prove that there is a God, that Christ did come, he died, he rose again. That's great. But do you, do you know him? Has God in Christ made an impact in your life? Has it changed the way you view the world? Has it changed the way you view others? Have you experienced him? That's a good question. We have to first look at these expert experiences, right? You've got to really consider um, the story of a public intellectual by the name of Paul. Paul, who was educated in the 
the Ivy League schools of his time, the Oxfords and the Cambridge. He was a passionate, passionate leader who persecuted Christians, who threw them in prison, prison who had them executed. Something happened to him and turned his life completely around and he went from being a persecutor of Christianity to being a proclaimer of the Christian truth. And he went around the Mediterranean world debating people, reasoning with people on the existence of God and on the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He gave us a lot of data through these letters he wrote that is compiled in the New Testament. How do you deal with his life change? How do you deal with the fact that he endured massive amounts of personal persecution and pain and beatings and stonings and whippings and imprisonment and ultimately had his head chopped off by Nero because of his beliefs in God and Christ? How do you account for that? How do you account for James, the half-brother of Jesus, who believed that he believed that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God, and he gave his life for belief in that. I love my brothers, Ed and Cliff, but they're not the Son of God. And it would take a lot of evidence and information to convince me of that. I don't think he ever could convince me of that. Anyway, that's compelling, expert, experiential testimony. Also, we have to look at human needs. Right? Human needs. Think about, I, I mean, over the years, you know, I've been in ministry for, I guess, for almost 30 years now. And, and I've met people from all over the world. I've met people from all different types of backgrounds. I've met people with all different types of problems and situations, and so many of them have said, since I've started to believe in God and believe in Christ, I've never felt so loved and accepted before in my entire life. I've talked to other people who have a terminal illness and they know they're gonna die, and they will say, somehow, someway, through my relationship with Christ, I'm okay with it, and I don't, have a fear of death. I've talked to other people that said, until I found a relationship with God in Christ, my life had no meaning, it had no purpose, and now I have great purpose, great meaning in every area of my life because of my relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So the basic human needs that we all have as you talk to so many people that are alive and breathing today that can come and testify, that can stand up here on the platform today and say, hey, let me tell you what God has done in my life. The needs he has met in my life. I know God is real. I've experienced his love. I've experienced his peace. I've experienced his power when I was at the end of my rope. There's human needs that are met by the God who is there, by the God who is real, that shouts for evidence for God. Also to he gives the power to help us overcome, overcome. 
to be set free from things that hold us down. One of my favorite public intellectuals is a guy by the name of Dr. Glenn Lowry. Glenn received his PhD from MIT. He was a tenured professor at Harvard. He currently teaches economics at Brown. He's not a very smart guy. And he's a brilliant guy, brilliant thinker, great public intellectual. Um, but I heard a story this week, I saw it um, online, where he talked about when he was teaching at Harvard uh, back in the 80s, again, a tenured professor there, he was struggling with addiction to cocaine. And as prolific as a writer and researcher he was and as a professor he was, he could not stop doing coke. So finally, at the age of 40, Glenn came to himself. He realized, God, I can't do this. He turned his life over to God. He said he asked Christ to come into his life. And at 40 years old, he was baptized like we do here. He got into a 12-step program. He admitted his life was powerless. He turned his life over to that God who would give him the power to overcome this addiction. And he hasn't touched cocaine since 1989. And Glenn is just one of thousands, no, millions of people who could testify to the experiential power of God in Christ to help them overcome something that was holding them down. So, if I could talk to the esteemed Dr. Bertrand Russell today, who said, there's insufficient evidence, God. I would say, Bertie, baby, bro, not only is there sufficient evidence, there are mountains <laughs> of evidence for the existence of God. Mountains. Just open your eyes, your ears and your mind, and you'll see that God is all around you. And you know what the good news is about, about the verse today? Romans 8.31. This all-powerful, all-knowing God who spoke this world into existence, who fine-tuned it that we could have life and have this moment here in time, who created things and biological systems that are irreducibly complex, this God who is the cause and the ultimate cause of all things, this God who is necessary for our thinking and our doing of life, this God who has showed us what true morality is and who's come to us in time-space history, this all-knowing, all-powerful, non-contingent God is for us. Wow. Yeah, he's for us. He's for us. God is, God is for us. Maybe you're going through a really difficult time in your life. And you don't know how you're going to make it through today, much less tomorrow or the following week. I, I want to tell you, listen, that God is for you. God is for you. He is with you in the midst of the trial that you're going through. 
Maybe you're questioning and wondering. You're like good old Bertrand Russell. You're saying, man, I want more evidence. I want to believe, but I still have doubts. That's okay. Listen, I, I, realize, I realize that evidence, you know, doesn't, well, there's so much evidence. I, I, you can doubt. I did my doctoral thesis on doubt, okay? I, I believe in doubt, too. But pray to God. Well, I don't believe in God yet. That's okay. It's not going to blow him away. It's not going to bother him. Pray to the God that you don't believe in, that you want to believe in. This God's for you. He's for you. And as we see in, in, in Romans 8, the end of this, the goat, the greatest chapter of all time, this God is tenacious, tenacious in pursuing us and revealing his will and his power and his plan to us on a very practical level. He is tenacious. If God is for us, the all-knowing, all-powerful God, who can be against us? God loves you. God loves you so much. Not some ooey-gooey, sir, Mr. Rogers. No, God loves you with a tender love and a tough love. But God loves you and he's pursuing you and he is for you. He's for you. He's for you. You can put your hopes in him. You can put your intellectual hopes in him. You can trust in him. You can put your existential needs in his hand and know that he is for you. He's for you.